This episode of Policing Matters is brought to you by L3 Harris. Carry confidence with you. L3 Harris provides ultra reliable portables and mobiles that are designed by and for those on the front lines. Learn more at l3harris.com. Welcome to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. Hey, thanks for joining us as we approach, or actually as we are at the fifth year anniversary of the Parkland, Florida shooting on February 14th, 2018 at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, where an individual shot 17 people. I've been asking experts, what have we done since then to prevent these kinds of tragedies from happening again? Well, Dr. Peter Blair is the executive director of the Advanced Law Enforcement Rapid Response Training Alert Center and a professor of the criminal justice at Texas State University. He earned his PhD in criminal justice from Michigan State University. He is recognized as a leading expert in the field of active attacks. He has published numerous books, articles, and commentaries on active attacks, police tactics, and training. Well, welcome to Policing Matters, Dr. Peter Blair. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about the Alert Center, the Advanced Law Enforcement Rapid Response Training Center. Sure. We started in 2002 as a partnership between Texas State University, the Hayes County Sheriff's Office, and San Marcos Police Department. And what had happened is, following Columbine, some of the officers from the Hayes County SWAT team, which includes members of San Marcos Police Department and Hayes County Sheriff's Office, had gone and received some training in active shooter response, and they had taken it back to their home organizations and started delivering that training. And what they realized, though, is that just training those two organizations was not enough, that anytime the call went out, it would be all the law enforcement agencies basically within a 100-mile radius probably rushing the scene to try to help. And so they wanted to have at least a regional kind of model for training that everybody would be on the same page when they were responding. And so they reached out to the university and looked for some opportunities to find some funding to maybe make that happen. And initially, we were able to get some funding from the state to do training in the state. And then very shortly after that, we got some federal money to start doing training across the country. So since 2002, that has grown really exponentially during that time. And we've trained hundreds of thousands of first responders across the country. It's roughly 250,000. The largest chunk of those is law enforcement. We also train fire and EMS personnel as well because they're part of that response process there. Uh, so in addition to doing all that training that we're out there doing, or really I should say the thing that makes us unique or different than other training organizations is that we have a real research component that plugs back into the training. So as you mentioned in the intro, I have a PhD. We also have a director of research who has a PhD. We employ graduate students as part of our process. And we're always involved in doing research to improve the training that we're doing. And that research has two large areas that we deal with. The first one is looking at actual events themselves and seeing what happened during those events for patterns, trends, lessons learned, that sort of thing. And the second part is to do what I would call our tactical type research, which is if there's a question about does technique A work better than technique B, we take that into the lab, we run a true experiment on it, record all of it, go through it frame by frame to see is one technique really better than another technique. And if that technique's better, then we start to integrate that into the training that we provide. So we're constantly updating what we're doing, we're constantly adapting to what's happened in the past and trying to provide the absolute best training that we can provide. 
Yeah, it sounds great. And I know that you do all the research and, and the legwork before the event. And of course, prevention is way better than response. You heard my opening in the aftermath of the Parkland shooting. We heard there were some clues and tips reported to the FBI about the shooter before the shooting. What can we do differently? Do you have a do you talk about an intel component in the training? Yeah, so our training is more focused on the events actually happening and how you respond to it. We do talk a little bit about the prevention side, primarily in pointing people toward other resources for that. But as you mentioned, there oftentimes are signs that what we see in these typical events and the people who've done research in them shows that it's very rare that it's somebody just gets mad and decides to go launch an attack. Rather, what you see is this person has a grievance, they're upset about something, they're not able to relieve that anger the way other people would relieve that anger. And over time, they're in this downward spiral getting angrier. They start to think about the attack. They start to plan the attack. They start to get the equipment they need to launch the attack, sometimes even do dry runs of the attack. Uh, and then they attack. So there's a process that usually follows the attack or precedes the attack. And what we also see is oftentimes that the attacker leaks parts of those processes to other people. So whether it's posting things on social media, mentioning it to their friends or their family, mentioning it in school somewhere. And so what we tell people is that if you hear that type of information, it's absolutely important to contact your authorities, contact your school, whoever it may be that can try to intervene. And the idea is not all these people who are having these thoughts are gonna end up launching attacks, but you wanna intervene as soon as you can to have the best chance to prevent something from developing to that point where it actually leads to an attack. Yeah, and it makes me think about um, the leadership structure and management. And so, you know, in the in the tragedy at Uvalde, um, you had you know somewhere near two hundred to four hundred uh, sworn on scene at some point. And of course, so many of those were on the outer perimeter, uh, establishing media sites and reunification sites and conducting traffic diversions and and all those other things. But you had that core of responders and then leadership makes the final decision. Is that a component where you test the leadership on scene and not only the kind of decisions they're making, but how quickly they're making them. And are they are they um, are they thinking about all the possible resources they have at their disposal? Yeah, that's absolutely part of our training. And one of the things that we see in Uvalde is one of the major issues was that there was a lack of an effective incident command structure being established. And so we've been in our training for several years now talking about the importance of incident command and actually working specific incident command procedures into the training. So that starts with the first officer on scene, understanding that if you're the only one there, you are the incident commander. That's going to be different than a normal incident commander, the way you think about setting up a command post and, and those sorts of things. It's going to be mobile, and if they're hearing violence, they're going to go toward the violence to stop it. Uh, but they are going to understand that they do have that initial role. And the, the big initial role for that first person on scene is to get on the radio and let people know what's happening. So we call it an LCAN, it's a location, location, conditions, actions, needs, and they get that information out so that the people who are rushing to scene have a little bit better picture of what's happening. And then they go in, they deal with the problem. And then sometime after that first wave hits, all those other responders are rushing to scene as well. And we call that the blue tsunami. And if you let the blue tsunami hit, 
and it's not controlled, it's going to swap the seed and it's going to cause as many problems as it solves, maybe cause more problems. So there's a need to recognize that we've trained officers for 20 years to say, get in there, get in there, get in there. And that first wave, absolutely, you still want that to occur. But if you're not there in the first couple minutes, you heard a bunch of guys call on scene, you see a bunch of cars parked around, they don't need you to go running into that building. What happens when you do that is you're self-deploying, you're becoming a randomly appearing problem. What you need to do is if the incident command process hasn't started is to facilitate that next step, which is that transfer of command from whoever was on scene first to this second wave usually coming out. And then that second wave person setting staging, getting unified with fire and EMS in order to coordinate those resources and do that initial response. And so that, that position, people have different names for that first transfer that happens. Uh, we're going with the name operations because that's what it's gonna become in the NIM structure over time. So that person who's in the operations position then is setting that initial structure and the big part of that initial structure is staging. And once you hear that staging call go out, all arriving units report to staging. They no longer launch into the building. And what you saw in Uvalde is all these people showing up on scene, randomly floating around, going in, going out. There's no central collection point for information. And so there's a lot of confusion about what's happening, what really is going on versus what I think is going on and what should I be doing or should I not be doing. And so that is something we've absolutely been pushing in our classes for the last several years. And following Uvalde, we're even pushing it more strongly now. Yes, I mean, you're talking about ICS structure with an incident command and a safety officer, staging officer, media officer, and then the groups of operations and plans and logistics and admin and finance. You know, I was um, fortunate to go to FEMA training. I don't want to tout your your um, rival school, but at Teeks, uh, do you overlap with them? Do you talk with Teeks. Yeah, absolutely. We we work with Teeks, and uh, they have a, one of the classes that we offer is sponsored by them through a kind of pass-through arrangement. Uh, but absolutely, the, the ICS is part of it. The thing that we've been pushing on is that the way ICS is traditionally taught, it's not taught in a law enforcement-friendly way. Hmm. It's taught in a more fire-centric way. And fire has an advantage in that because they do everything under incident command, right? They they leave the station, they're already under command. They're in that structure. Police are not in that structure. They're randomly patrolling, mostly handling their own business, getting dispatch calls, doing those sorts of things. And so fire shows up in command. They're used to doing it. They do it on every scene. You know, the, the joke is they even do it for dinner, right? They instant command for dinner, right? So, but the reality is that police don't do that very often. And so they need to learn the structure and understand it. But it needs to be presented in a way that it's useful as opposed to here's this big org chart with all these things I got to do. And as a patrol officer, I don't understand it. I'm never going to do any of that stuff. It doesn't make sense to me. So we talk about how to build it from that first patrol officer on scene. That first handoff, again, that I mentioned is really the big, the big position we find when that first handoff goes well and is done effectively that the scene is managed and what happens after that tends to go well because then all the higher level people show up, your, your lieutenants and captains and chiefs and that, and they're more familiar with the system and they, they that stuff gets passed out, but the people who are there on scene are still looking in to see the problems that need to be solved. And you can show them that it's an effective structure and it works for them if it's presented in the right way. Yeah, we really try to drum it into, you know, line officer all the way to the top. 
uh, ICS uh, and FEMA training is free, right? So why not? And and we do 100 through 400 and 700 and 800. And um, we try to tell officers that you, just like you said, you're the first on the scene, you're the incident commander. You can draw it in the sand or put it on the back of your radio car or bring out one of the boards that we put in several of the vehicles. It's It can be used for anything, a, a mass casualty incident, a mass uh, vehicle collision, yeah, you know the yeah, value. We, yeah, we look at it all the time. Uh, we've got I-35 runs right by my university here, and almost every day there's a car accident on it, and that involves bringing fire up to block the, the lanes of traffic and then police officers there. That's a perfect opportunity to practice the basics of instant command. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I'm sure you're familiar with NASRO, the National Organization for School Resource Officers. They've touted in, in reports over the years uh, that they've uh, averted dozens of shootings due to diligent school resource officers. Are they our best line of defense at schools before shootings? They're a line of defense, right? So they're, to me, it's defense in depth kind of strategy. No particular strategy you use is going to be perfect. So you want to make as many different levels of defense as possible. You want to make each level as good as it can be. And certainly the SRO is an important part of that. Yeah. So looking at your website, um, and I've listed it in the show notes below, so our listeners can go and click on it to, to see more about alert. Uh, I notice you have the avoid, deny, and defend training. It's a different from the standard of our run, hide, fight strategy. And I've heard um, from different um, perspectives that Run, hide, fight is morphing more into run, fight, hide. Uh, what do you think? So one, avoid, deny, defend, and run, hide, fight, when run, hide, fight is explained correctly, are the same systems. And uh, there's a whole backstory about the people in Houston who put that together and their relationship to us. But um, it's the same thing. And we put them in the order of preference. And like I said, run, hide, fight, explained correctly is the same system. One of the issues you end up with in run, hide, fight, because oftentimes run, hide, fight training for people consists of no more than a short video and a bunch of posters around that have these images. One of the most common images on the run, hide, fight posters is for hiding the person being under a table and doing that. And that is exactly how most of the kids that were killed in Columbine were killed. And if you hear the Uvalde teacher talk about what he did with his students, where all of his students were killed in his classroom, he did the same thing. Mm. So hide means don't be seen. It doesn't mean get underneath something and hope they don't find you, in which case you have no options. So any system you have, these, these situations are too complex to say, here's one thing you're going to do, and then that's it. It has to be flexible. It has to be adaptive to what's happening on the scene. So. Can people defend themselves or fight during these situations successfully? The answer is yes, they can. Is that your first choice? Usually not. And the reason for that is that the person has a weapon, you don't have a weapon, and the big advantage of the weapon is distance. If they're far away from you, they can likely use that weapon on you before you get to them. But that doesn't mean that it's off the table. Uh, and it also doesn't mean that we want people to go through a school, for example, looking to for the attacker and I'm going to go attack the attacker. It's more when the attacker comes to you, then you defend yourself and, and stop that person from killing you and others. So 
I think in an adaptive situation, um, you have to say, okay, this is the action that I'm doing now, but then I have a backup plan in case that action doesn't work. And, and the big problem we see in schools is schools take avoid off the table to start with because they do lockdown generally. So that means they're going to defend or to hide, if you want to call it that. And a closed and locked door in a school environment is very effective. I mean, it stops people. We haven't seen a door itself successfully breached. We've seen some glass shot out next to doors and people get in that way. But the door itself is a good time barrier. It slows people down. And generally, the attacker hasn't spent the time needed to bust through the door and get into the situation. So it's a, a good primary defense. The problem is, if the door fails, like happened in Uvalde, where it doesn't appear that that door was ever latched, never really secured, then you need to know what you're going to do after that. So lockdown, deny access, hide is a good first response, but you need to be prepared if that door fails, what do I do? And in that case, it may be defend is your next best option, right? You can be close to the door, but not in front of it and have something in your hand to try to bludgeon them with or whatever you have available to you. That if that person does get through that door, you're gonna fight for your life and try to stop them from killing you and, and the other people. Depending on the age of the kids, the kids might assist in that process, but in little kids like in Wale, you're going to tell those kids just to run. You want them to get out of the get out of the building, right? Get away from the attacker. And, and it's a horrible thing for a teacher to contemplate that you might be trading your life for your kids' lives on that day. Um, so I, I think that all those options have a place, they have a role. We can't say that this is the only order that we'll ever see them in, or this is the only way it should be. In general, we put them in that order because in general, that's the way we'd like to see it. But what happens on the scene affects what you do. And so it may be that it's run first and then then fight in that given situation. Sure. Yeah. And every, every situation is unique. Hey, I, I want to talk a little bit more about... Um, the website and some of the resources, but first I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. When seconds matter, count on dependable coverage on and off campus. L3 Harris offers flexible and affordable portables. Communicate on the move with Wi-Fi voice and data, GPS, and app-based devices that keep you connected. Schedule your demo today. Learn more at l3harris.com. And we're back and I'm speaking with Dr. Peter Blair, Executive Director of the Advanced Law Enforcement Rapid Response Training Center, the Alert Center. And I think it's great that your website gives information on police response and the aftermath. What's your take on arming teachers with guns on campus? So we don't have an official position on that. That's up to individual districts to determine on their own and their state laws and, and those sorts of things that influence that. Uh, what we will say is that if you're going to arm teachers, that's a serious responsibility. And you're going to have to have the policy and procedure in place about what you expect those teachers to do, how you're going to select those teachers, how they're, what kind of firearms they're going to have, where they're going to keep the firearms, under what circumstances they're supposed to use those firearms. Mm. Then they need training in all those circumstances to make sure that they know what they're supposed to do and can do it competently. And you also need to make sure that the teachers have a way to identify themselves as being, you know, quotes, unquote, a good guy as opposed to the bad guy, because in many cases, the attacker is going to look just like the teacher would look, right? And so 
something to identify themselves. We oftentimes recommend they train with the local police department so there's a better chance that the, the officers will know who the armed teachers are in that particular mm. facility. But there's a lot that goes through thinking through what is that process. And the one thing we will say is simply saying we're going to arm teachers and we're going to give every teacher a gun. That's not the right approach to take. You need to be very selective about it, about identifying people who are willing to do this and then screening those people in much the same way you'd screen law enforcement officers to make sure they're the right kind of person for that. And then having very clear policy and procedure about what they should do. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, you bring up really great points that we've talked about. We've debated uh, debated with Joel Schultz, a Denver area chief. And, uh, you know, it's a perishable skill. I mean, as law enforcement officers, we train all the time. Uh, once you're once you're sworn, you're maybe twice a year. And um, and then the other consideration you talked about is, you know, the good guy with a gun when uh, law enforcement responds and they see somebody running across campus with a gun in their hand, all bets are off, right? So that's a great idea is to learn how to identify um, the the teachers with the guns. You talk about three stages of disaster response on the website, denial, deliberation, and the decisive moment. Some of it sounds like fight or flight. Some of it sounds like the OODA loop where you're trying to decide as the situation unfolds. Um, it sounds like it describes civilians who find themselves at a shooting incident. What is the teaching to non-law enforcement officers like? What's your, what's your main message there? So the uh, that process of denial, deliberation, decisive moment actually comes from a book by Amanda Ripley uh, called When Disaster Strikes, Who Survives and Why? And that's an excellent book I suggest people pick up. Because what she did is she she looked at all these different types of disasters, man-made in addition to natural disasters, and tried to see what's the process that happened. And one of the most surprising findings of that was, if you think back to your disaster movies you saw as a kid growing up, when a disaster strikes, you see everybody panic and they're running around like crazy and it's just mass chaos. And Amanda found that exactly the opposite tends to happen at first that there's this delay, this denial phase that happens where the disaster is happening, but everybody is trying to frame it as if, well, maybe it's something normal, maybe it's something usual. And that's delaying them from responding to the actual crisis that's happening. So people who were in the Twin Towers on the day that the, the plane hit were calling other people, they were shutting down their computers, they were packing up their stuff like it was a normal end of business day when you can only imagine the, what that impact must have felt like in the building, right? It's definitely a non-normal thing. And that delay in getting around to understanding a disaster happening can cost people lives because it costs you that time that you could be acting to save your life. And what she found in looking at all these events is that the people who tended to survive were ones who had thought about the event beforehand. Mm. And then they got immediately past the denial. Even if they were unsure about what was happening, the fact that it was non-normal and out of the normal, they started taking action. They had already had some sort of plan in place about what it is they should do. And they started implementing that plan and they started acting. And then they would adjust and adapt as they needed to. But those are the people who survived. And uh, I have an example of uh, some people who took our, our civilian response class and were at the Harvest Festival shooting in Las Vegas. 
and reached out to us afterward. And, and the one woman had taken the class. She was out in West Texas. And she said, I didn't think this would ever apply to me. It's not relevant, that kind of thing. But she actually said when they were there at the scene and the attacker started shooting, he was shooting at the uh, tanks on the runway of the airport. And they immediately heard the gunfire and she and her sister, they had heard gunfire before and they were like, is that? And as soon as they said, is that? The woman who had been through the training grabbed her sister and said, let's go. Mm. They didn't even take time to figure out for sure that it was gunfire. It was the fact that it could be, you need to act now. We've heard more than one loud bang. Let's act now. Starts dragging her sister and said, I just took this class. And they said, don't wait, start going. And then they were already moving to the exits and they didn't go to the exits closest to them because they thought that that would lead in the direction that they thought the gunfire had come from. So they actually went to another exit and they were flowing opposite of people as people started to figure out. And they were one of the first ones that were out the door out of the scene safely before everybody else even really figured out what was going on. And that's the kind of process that helps people survive is that idea that I've, I understand what I need to be looking for. Something's out of the ordinary. I'm going to start taking action. I might be wrong, but the most embarrassed I would be is I'd get to the exit and be like, okay, maybe, you know, maybe I should go back in. Um, but they were out safely. And, and that's the kind of thing we try to, to develop in the training that we provide is that idea of get past the denial, understand it's an unusual situation. It could be life-threatening. You've already thought about this a little bit beforehand. So you have a plan that you can pull on and start acting on and just start acting. And then you can readjust later and figure out, okay, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I overreacted in this case. But in that case, you were out safe if there was something bad happening. Yeah, and that's really counterintuitive to our own human nature when something happens and we try to rationalize in our mind what it could be as opposed to what it probably is. And, um, you know, in, I was just thinking back to Colorado when people are sitting in the movie theater and this guy walks in in a Batman costume and then starts firing at the crowd and... I mean, that's an example of, do you sit and wait and try to figure it out in your mind? Or, you know, there might be some embarrassment if you get up and run and it is a prank or it is part of the show. So you've really got to fight that urge. Yeah, it's the, uh, what we always tell people is don't hang around till you figure out exactly what's going on. The minute it's weird, start taking action. And yeah, you may have a situation where you're embarrassed because it wasn't what you thought it was. But if you delay, now you're behind the curve, right? Yeah, absolutely. Hey, thanks so much for taking time. Uh, how can our listeners find out about where the alert training is happening or how to get to Texas to take your course? Sure. Our website is alert.org, A-L-E-R-R-T.org. You can find all the information up there about trainings, that sort of thing. 95% of the training that we do is mobile. We go out to the locations. We've trained in all 50 states and some of the territories of the U.S. as well. So, uh, you know, we, we will come to your location to do that training. If you're interested in the civilian training, our civilian response to active shooter events is available through our e-learning platform. Uh, anybody can take it. It's free. And uh, you just sign up for it, you go through the class, and then you actually get access to the PowerPoints and materials that you can use to teach other people. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I you know, personally, I've been retired from, from law enforcement, but I just took a Stop the Bleed tourniquet course um, a week ago. And 
the class was full. And I've seen these community trainings before CPR first aid, you know, you get some response, but this, maybe it's, it's because of the climate of shootings, um, you know, that we're alerted to, <laughs> there's your plug alert, but uh, you know, I think we have people in the community saying, if we can't stop the shootings, how can we help? And and Stop the Bleed is a great program. I mean, it takes an hour to learn how to use the tourniquets. Yeah, so in-person training, we have our civilian response class partnered with the Stop the Bleed program. We call it CR, CRCC, Civilian Response and Casualty Care. Uh, that teaches the stop the bleed in addition to what you should do during that action. And it, it's designed as a train, the trainer for primarily first responders to go back to their home agencies and train people in their communities. Uh, it's a great uh, public relations effort as well, because you get to get out there in the community and have positive contact with people, teaching them a skill that may actually save somebody's life. Yeah, that's great. Hey, thanks again, Dr. Peter Blair, for taking time to talk about the ALERT program, and uh, you're doing good work. appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Okay, and to our listeners, hey, tell me what you thought about the show. I hope you enjoyed it, and if you want the resources, they're in the show notes. Just click on those, and um, drop me a line at policingmatters at policeone.com. And let me know what you think. Let me know what you want to hear about. And I'll see what I can do. All right. Stay safe. Take good care. And I hope to talk to you again real soon. I'm Jim Dudley. Bye.